But keeping with the theme, sometimes you just have to. Uh, we believe that we just have to launch a third service on October the 7th. And uh, yeah, and, and you're really going to like what I say next. I mean, how many of you kind of like to stay up late Saturday night? It's okay. It's not a sin to do that. Can I just see your hands? Yeah, and, and that's why you're in the second service, by the way. <laughs> but imagine if there were a four o'clock service. How late could you stay up then? Because that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a 4 p.m. service. And uh, we, we hope that some of you, and we'll, once we get closer to it, we'll be asking you to volunteer for at least three months, four months to kind of seed that service. We won't ask the 9 o'clock people because they're all fuddy-duddies. They get up early. They, they wouldn't even consider making a move. Now, we'll ask them too, but they won't, they won't do it. But uh, <laughs> you already want to stay up late, so we know you might comply. But we feel like there is a niche in Frederick. Uh, for people that do. They're, they're curious about their spiritual walk, but they want to enjoy their weekend, stay up late Friday, Saturday night, and so that four o'clock service them. And by the way, if you're thinking, man, that's football game, you know, the game is just ending, you expect me to leave right then when it's ending. Well, they, that's why they have recording systems now, <laughs> so that you can record. If I can record the games, and I do, you can record the games. So um, anyway, October 7th, we'll launch at 4, 4 p.m. service. Uh, very exciting time for us. And, and one of the things that I think that it will do is... Um, this is a weird auditorium. Even though it is not full by any means, it, it can sometimes feel a little fuller than it is. And when new people come in, if it feels crowded to them or they have to walk across people, they're hesitant to experience that again. So some of us will make an exodus, no doubt, to the four o'clock service, leaving a little more room in here. So we'll have new people coming in here feeling comfortable as well as brand new people coming to the 4 p.m. service is what our hope is. So that's just an announcement. <laughs> So we're continuing with the series, sometimes you just have to, and the whole notion of the series is that it's just, there are seasons in life that we march through, God wants us to march through them, they require definite action, and if we actually trust God, it will be displayed by our action, and when we take this action to comply with God's will in that given experience, uh, we develop, we grow. And so we have a kind of a, a verse that's our overarching verse of this whole series. Here it is. It's from the New Testament book of James. It says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it does not, what is the next word? Prove. If it does not prove itself with actions, is what? It's dead. Another translation, uh, ISV says, so then faith that doesn't involve action is, what is the word? Phony. So, you know, you go to the doctor, the doctor says, you know, you have a very serious condition, but we can keep you alive, but in order to keep you alive, you gotta take four different medications a day, every day. If you trust that, that physician, you're gonna take the medication every day. If you say, yeah, I trust you, doc, but you don't take the medication, you die. Faith without action is dead. And so that's the basis of this. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, um, people, and probably because of churches uh, like ourselves, have somehow given the notion that the, the number one thing that, that God wants people to consider is just to make very sure that you're headed for his kingdom, that the main thing you need to find out in this life is you need to find out what is it, what is it that God expects us to do, wants us to do, so that he can grant us forgiveness and everlasting life. And once you find that formula, whatever it is, maybe you need a bunch of good deeds, maybe your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds, and then he lets you into heaven and forgives your sins. Or maybe you need to go through some sacraments and do a bunch of sacraments faithfully, and then he forgives your sins and lets you into heaven. Or, or maybe you need to join a certain church or give some money or repeat some prayers, or maybe you need to believe certain things 
And if you believe those certain things, then God checks it off and says, you're, you're free to come in. So maybe you think, or you've heard in churches that, you know, like if you just believe that Jesus loves you, died for your sins on the cross and rose again, if you believe those facts, then, then you're in. That's what God requires, belief in something, in an it. But what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at an individual in the Bible that God, he sets this individual in the Bible. He repeats his name 311 times in the Bible. 73 of them are in the New Testament. And he keeps pointing, pointing at this person. He says, if you want to know the kind of relationship that I want to have with every human, the kind of relationship that puts them in a right standing with me, meaning... I forgive them and I give them as a free gift everlasting life. If you want to know what that looks like, you've got to look at this man. And we're going to look at him in just a bit. But one of the things we've said in this series is that God intends this life once we return to him in trust. This life is meant to give us the prime opportunity for that. Once we do return to him in trust and begin to follow Christ because we trust him, then we're supposed to grow. Our life is always supposed to be an adventure. It's supposed to be growth. It it is tragic to me that most people that you will ever meet, they have no clue whatsoever what their purpose in life is. They they are just living day to day, staying very busy and, and mostly very entertained, but they don't know who they are. They don't know why they're here. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing with their life. And they don't understand that God has a purpose. And that purpose is primarily that once we reconnect with him, that we're to start to grow, to develop, to become a Christ-like version of ourselves, our unique self, but Christ-like. And God allows us to go through various situations in life that will help stir things in us to catalyze this kind of development and growth. So here's a little phrase I shared with you last week, and we'll share it throughout this series. God always intended our relationship with him to be dynamic. That means it's, it's energetic. There's, there's dynamic. There's, there's an element of exchange, relational exchange, and developmental. The dynamic is the result of our trust in God. I don't trust in things about God alone. I trust in him personally. That's dynamic. Uh, anytime you trust a person, a relationship, that, that's dynamic. It affects you today, tomorrow, next week, and so on. So the dynamic is the result of our trusting God. The development is the result of our, what is the word? Obedience to God. Listen, you can stay in a place like this. You can study your Bible. You can memorize your Bible. You can can study theology all your life. And if you don't obey God's word, you just know it, but you don't obey it, you will never grow. You will never change. You will never become the Christ-like version of yourself that you can and God intends for you and I to become. Without obedience, no development happens. And so you have dynamic trust. I trust a living Christ. Jesus in John 10, calling himself the good shepherd, he said, my sheep, meaning people, hear my voice. That's hearing God's word, responding to his word. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And then the key thing is next. And they follow me. And then he says, and I give to them eternal life, and they'll never perish. So who, who receives the gift of eternal life? Those that respond to Jesus' word and actually follow him. To follow him means I not only take in his word, I not only learn his word, but I obey it. So, so these are critical things that we want to keep in mind as we go through each message in this series. Sometimes you just have to, and today we come to, sometimes you just have to leave something. Now, um, I want to say at the beginning, I'm fearful whenever I give a message like this because um, it's inevitable that multitudes of people will think, God was speaking to me today and he wants me to quit my job. (laughs) You know, your, your job's going crappy, your boss is mean or something like that. So please, if you think that that's what God says to you in this message, 
at least make an appointment before you pull the trigger on this and talk to someone that, that can give you wise biblical counsel, experienced in life and so forth like that. If nobody else call me, I'll spend the time with you. Secondly, there is the danger that some people are thinking, I know what that message meant. I'm dumping my spouse. He wants me to leave. You know, I had my feelings, but now I know for sure. Uh, you know, same thing. Get, get some counsel before you pull that trigger. All right. So we, we've set the, the floor clear to go forward. Um, we're going to look at a portion of scripture and meet a man, like I said, that, that is so important because he is the prototype. He's the one that God points at and says, if you want to know the kind of relationship I want to have with you that puts you in a right standing with me, that gives you a, a righteous standing with me, this, this is it. This is the guy you got to look at. So let's turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, and we'll meet a man named Abraham. And when you get to Abraham, you know, we were with Noah last week. Uh, we're roughly 400 years since uh, Noah's time when you come to Genesis 12. And uh, to give you a little bit of bearing, th th this comes out in other parts of Scripture. Like if you were to read chapter 11, verses 27 through the end of it, you would know these things. But I'm just going to kind of throw you in. This guy, Abraham, before we get into the text, a little bit about him. He lived in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. And... Uh, Ur of the Chaldees, in the time that he lived there, and we're going back about 4,000 years roughly, it was a very sophisticated city. It was not like cave-like experience at all, very sophisticated. The Sumerians, he lived under the Sumerian society, and the Sumerian, how many of you drove to work today? I know you think I'm drifting, I'm not drifting. How many of you drove in here, not to work, but you drove here today? Can I see your hands? Okay. Do you know why you drove here today? Because the Sumerians around 4,000 years ago, invented the wheel. So that's what this culture was like. They invented the wheel. They invented writing systems. They invented um, very complex mathematics and astronomy. Uh, they are the first to, to develop uh, urban planning for cities. There's something weird about this Sumerian culture. It's kind of like mankind was fumbling around and then all of a sudden, poof, they come up with all these very complex things. That's where Abraham came from. He lived there the first 75 years of his life. Now, he lives to be 175, but that's where he came from. It was a very nice place to live. It offered the best life ever for those days 4,000 years ago. Very sophisticated. So keep that in mind as we read what's about to happen. Now let's go to Genesis 12. We can all go th through this together. Now the Lord said to Abram, go out from your country, your relatives, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Then I will make you into a what? Great nation. That's the first promise. Second promise, and I will what? Bless you. Third promise, and I will make what? Make your name great. You're going to have a lot of influence, Abraham, so that you will exemplify divine blessing. Verse 3. Yet another promise, I will bless those who bless you, but the ones who treat you lightly, I must curse. Other translations say, but I'll curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth will bless one another by your name, or all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So here's yet another promise. He, he gives him a whole set of promises. But mind you, he's saying, Abraham, you've been very comfortable in this wonderful city, Ur of the Chaldees, but I want you to leave it all. 
We read elsewhere in scripture that God did not tell him exactly where he was going. We're going to look at some verses in a bit to show that. And Abraham has this choice to make. God says, I want to make you great. I want to make you a great nation. I want to bless you. I want to make you a blessing. But you've got to leave behind your old life. Everything, all the things that are near and dear and familiar, all the things that make you feel safe and secure and satisfied, you have to be willing to leave it all behind. And and God doesn't even tell him exactly where he's going. How many of you can recall, some of you that are Christ followers, and I'm hoping that's most of you, but how many can recall when you first made the decision to put your trust in Christ and become his follower, and you didn't exactly know what all that was going to mean? You, You didn't exactly know everything there was in God's word about the kind of lifestyle he wanted you to live. But one thing you did know, you knew that you trusted Christ. And so you were taking this journey and you you were just going to do what he said because you trust him. But you really didn't know where you were going altogether. How many can remember that experience? I mean, that's honestly the experience of most that come to Christ. Abraham, God never tells him. He tells him what he's going to do with him. He's going to make him great. He's going to make him a blessing. He's going to bless him. He's going to protect him and all that. But he never tells him where he's going exactly. Number one thing to consider. Number two thing to consider, he never says in this passage anything about, and Abraham, if you do this, I'll forgive your sins. Or Abraham, if you do this, you can be sure you will have eternal life in my kingdom. The promise isn't there. It's not there. And yet Abraham takes the risk, makes the journey, and completely turns his life upside down. Now let me show you the region that that this all takes place in. Um, Get get yourself kind of oriented so you can see, you know, if you start the Mediterranean, you see Canaan and Lebanon. That's where God's uh, ultimately going to leave him. But where he lived, it's way down by the Persian Gulf. Can you see? You see the word Sumer, and then you see... uh, Ur of the Chaldees, right on the edge of the Persian Gulf there. You can see it's modern, partially in modern-day Iraq. It takes in some of Syria, and it even goes a little bit into Turkey, this region, this fertile crescent triangle. But this Sumerian culture was very, very sophisticated. And so Abraham starts following God, not knowing where he's going to go, but he ends up making about a 1,000-mile journey because he would have followed the Euphrates River and then trailed off and then turned down toward Canaan. So that's what he's asking him to do. And... In the process, his life will never, ever be the same. He's leaving family. He's leaving friends. He's leaving accomplishments. He's leaving comforts for the unknown. Now, let me show you some other verses that expand on this a bit in the New Testament. Remember I said this guy is mentioned uh, multiple times in the New Testament. I think I said 73 times in the New Testament and, uh, and 311 times in the whole Bible. But turn to page 1356. It, uh, it'll appear up there. Even if it doesn't, you can turn there. 1356. And you'll be looking at the book of Hebrews, uh, page one. Those Bibles are near you. Not sure what that was. But <laughs> okay. So look at, look at, first of all, this is really, really important. Look, look, look at, and, and, and I know it seems like I'm getting off again, but I'm going to come back to those slides. I, I, I know I goofed a little bit. Um, goofed really big in the first service. But in Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 6. It says, now without, what? What is the word? Faith or trust. Every time you see the word faith, you can think faith, trust, reliance, confidence, and so on, same same word. Now without faith, it's certainly possible to please him as long as you do good works. Is that what it says? All right. Now, Now without faith, as long as you live by the golden rule, it's possible to please God. Is that what it says? Without faith, as long as you're baptized, it's possible to please God. Is that what it says? 
Without faith, as long as you keep the sacraments, it's possible to please God. Is that what it says? How many are sick of me doing this and you get my point? Okay, okay. all right, thank you. <laughs> now, without faith, it is impossible to please him, meaning God. For the one who approaches God must believe that he what? That he exists. You have to believe that he's there. And the evidence is everywhere. We're, we're the evidence. The world is the evidence. The universe is the evidence. But it's not only that that he exists. And that he rewards those who do what? Oh, that's, that's important. That's easy to read right over and not get it. Do they, do they seek salvation? Because churches somehow, we've given the notion to people that what God really cares about is that people seek something called salvation. We, we like these words, these churchy words, salvation. And, and what that is, is kind of this package that gives you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But did that verse say that, that you must believe that God exists and that you seek salvation, that you seek forgiveness, that you seek everlasting life? Does it say that? No, no. Let me, let me read it to you again. Must believe that he exists and that, that he rewards those who seek, what does it say? him well that's really different why would a person seek God well why, I mean why would you seek him unless you thought it was worthwhile why would you seek him unless you thought he was good why would you seek him unless you thought he could give or bring something that you yourself couldn't bring there must be something about him but you're seeking him we have too many people that are seeking it we we are we are prone to attempt to use God we want to get him on our side and off our back. We want his blessings. We don't want his cursings. We want his forgiveness. We want everlasting life. We want the elevator going up. We don't want the elevator going down at the end of life. But we're seeking an it. And you can't have the it without the him. You see, he is the it. It is when we seek him. It is when we trust him. Personal relationship, dynamic relationship that he gives us the it because frankly he can't give us the it apart from himself and we got churches packed out full of people today folks all over this country who who people will say yes indeed i'm i'm a christian I'm, i have salvation i'm saved and they're believing in a formula they're believing in something like i asked jesus into my heart or oh i believe that jesus died for me and rose again and is coming again i believe that bible cover to cover they believe a lot of it's they believe a lot of facts but many of them are religious but lost they haven't trusted him tell you a secret i've met a bunch of them don't even like him they don't you can tell by the way they live and talk they're always trying to, do, do we have to do this as a Christian? I mean, can't you do that and still be a Christian? Do you have to go to church? Good grief, you know? That's not the way. That's not the way somebody that's seeking him, trusting him, thinks. All right. So Abraham is the start of a movement. From Abraham will come the nation Israel, ultimately, in about 400, 430 years. They will become a revelatory people. What do you mean revelatory people? It means that God is going to reveal himself to them, give laws to them, his laws, and then he will cause them to start writing them down in Moses' day so that the rest of the world can see God for who he is in a very safe way. Not very threatening to read a book about God. If he shows up in your face at nighttime, you're going to be a little intimidated. So he starts this movement with Abraham. And Abraham becomes the guy that he says, if you want to get it, if you want to know what I want in a relationship with you humans, here it is. It's, it's what this guy did. And here's the cool thing, the encouraging thing. When you read Abraham's story, essentially here's what he does. He's 75 when he gets the call. For the next 100 years, all he does is wander around from place to place in the wilderness of Canaan. 
It's not like he goes and he influences millions of people and, and uh, converts millions of people to become God followers. He doesn't do anything like that. He just gets up and goes to sleep and works and takes care of cattle. Occasionally, God comes to him and says, hey, Abraham, I got something new I want to teach you today. I want you to um, take all the males and gather them around because um, today we want to institute this new rite called circumcision, you know, and Abraham obeys. He appears to Abraham various times and tells him things, and he does, but his life Some of you feel like, unless you're making some big splash for God, that your life is inconsequential and nothing could be further from the truth. Your trust in him is precious to him. All right, now now let's dig into this thing a little bit. Let me show you uh, a chart. And this is where we're going to look at today in Abraham's life. And the reason this is important is because of something that happens in Genesis 15, 6. But you can see his journey starts out about 1892 B.C. We just read about it. God calls him, and he does. He leaves Ur. And then about 10 years later, and remember, the first thing God said is he was going to make him a great nation. To have a great, become a great nation, you have to have a kid. You've got to have some children. You've got to have lots of kids. Abraham, 10 years after God promised to make him a nation, he can't have a kid. Sarai, or Sarah, his wife, is barren. And, and so it's 10 years later, and he hasn't had a kid, and, and he's a little alarmed by that. And so God takes him out one night and says, hey, Abraham, check out the stars. What do you think, man? Can you think you could count them? And he says, uh, Abraham, your descendants are going to be more than the stars that you can see. And the scripture says something really wild. It says, Abraham, and we're going to read many versions of this in just a minute. It says, Abraham believed or trusted in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness, or it was given to him a right standing with God. This is the most significant verse in the Old Testament because it carries over the New Testament. It says, how does an unrighteous person, I'm unrighteous, man, I've broken just about all of God's laws. How does somebody like me ever become right in the sight of God? And Abraham is the answer. It's when I put my trust in him, he counts me as righteous. And it all goes back to that, that verse, Genesis 15, 6. So 10 years after, he sees the stars and Abraham says, yeah, man, I believe it. Even though Sarah can't have any kids, I believe you can do it, God. Look, look down. 26 years later, after his original call, uh, the Lord shows up and, and he says, hey, Abe, uh, how you doing? You're, you're going to have a kid next year around this time, and it's going to be a natural kid. It's going to come right from Sarah's body and your body. And Sarah hears this. It's really fun if you read the passage. And she starts laughing. She says, she's 99 years old. She's way past menopausal. Abe is 100. He, he, he's not active either anymore. The scripture is pretty honest. And Sarah laughs at the Lord. She hears what the Lord says. And the Lord calls her down and says, you're laughing. And Sarah lies to the Lord face to face. No, I didn't. I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, yes, you did. It's, it's a really humorous scene. Nevertheless, 26 years later, Abraham trusts God, and the scripture is not trying to be crude, but it says he trusted God so much, he took physical action with Sarah, and, and even though they were past years, they produced a child. And in the New Testament, each time, when he took him out 10 years later, and he looked at the stars, it says that God gave him a right standing. He trusted in him, and he gave him right standing. Then it comes 26 years later, when he trusts in this uh, unnatural, natural birth, whatever you want to call it. It says in the New Testament, and that's when God credited him as righteous. Then you go further, all the way 58 years after the original call. Now he has the son. The son's name is Isaac. Isaac means laughing because Sarah laughed. And all of a sudden, the son, Abraham comes, or God comes to Abraham and says, listen, I want you to take your son, your one and only son, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham gets ready to do it. And you probably know the story. Go back. Go back. Genesis 22. 
It is 58 years, get this please, 58 years later after the call, but in the New Testament book of James, it says, and that's when Abraham was justified, or that's when Abraham was given a right standing with God. So here's what I want you to see. When did he get this right standing with God? Was it at the beginning when he left? Was it 10 years later when God said it? Was it 26 years later when God affirmed it again? Was it 58 years later? Or was the Bible and God trying to teach us something about the kind of relationship that he wants with us? That if I trust God, I'm gonna trust him today, tomorrow, next year, next decade, next 20 years, next 30 years, and each time I learn something from him that he wants me to do, because I trust him, I'm gonna do it, and each time I learn something from him that he wants me to stop, I'm gonna stop it because I trust him. Look at the verses now. Here, here's the Genesis 15, six in very, very, various versions. I think we're gonna have that, I'm pretty sure. There it is. Good news translation. You have to understand, when people are trying to translate Hebrew and Greek into English, often they have to use something called dynamic equivalency. They can't get the exact words, so they have to pick a few different ones that they think will translate the idea. This doesn't mean we can't trust our Bibles. It means we can trust them. They're very, very good today. But when we compare them, it's even better. So here's that Genesis 15, 6 in the Good News translation. Abraham put his what? Trust in something in the plan of salvation in the sinner's prayer, or in who? The Lord, a living person. And because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him, accepted him, gave him a right standing. NIV, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as what? Given a right standing with God. NCV, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord accepted Abraham's faith and that faith made him what? Right with God. They're all trying to translate the same idea. Um, N-E-T, which is the one that we use in here. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord considered his response of faith as a proof of genuine loyalty. When I trust God, I become loyal to him. I become devoted to him. NLT, New Living Translation. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous. Why? Because of his faith, not by any works. N-I-R-V, Abraham believed the Lord. The Lord was pleased with Abraham because he believed. So Abraham's faith made him right with the Lord. And then the Amplified Version. Love it because they'll take all the, the nuances of the word they're trying to translate. And he, Abraham, believed in, trusted in, relied on, remained steadfast. That's all the same word for, for trust or belief or faith. The Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Then they give you the idea, right standing with God. Listen, there's a verse in the book of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. It says that we can know that we have eternal life. If you were right now standing at the gates of heaven and God asked you, do you know that you have eternal life? Then please don't get alarmed. You don't need to answer this to, to get in, okay? But, but I'm just saying if it happened. In fact, let's do it this way. To take you off the hook and just so we can, we can learn humbly together. How many of you have had at times doubts that you have eternal life? I'm not saying that you're not a Christian, but, but there have been times when you, I hope so. I, I, I don't. How many of you have ever had doubts that you have eternal life? Can I see your hands? All right. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and you can read verses 11 through 13. It says that we can know that we have eternal life. God wants us to know and it's all based on this trust, this faith. Once I put, I'm gonna call it something now, Abrahamic faith in Christ, I have forgiveness of sins. I have eternal life. No one or anything can change that, take that. I am safe, I'm secure, and now I can start to really grow 
because I'm safe and secure. There's no reason that you should walk, walk out of here today and not have absolute certainty whether or not you have eternal life or a right standing with God. Abraham is the model. And it's a trust in a living Christ, not a dead bunch of doctrines. A dead bunch of doctrines. The doctrines aren't, aren't meant to be dead. They're meant to tell us the right things about Christ so that we put trust in him. But he's alive. Remember the, remember the verse I quoted, John 10, 27? My sheep, says Jesus, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Shepherds in the Middle East, you know, they, they responded, or, or the sheep responded to the shepherd's voice. When we trust Christ, we respond. He says, and they follow me, and I give them, I give them. It's a free gift. They don't earn it. They don't work for it. Eternal life. You need to settle that one, folks. It's not about being a member of a church. It's not about going through baptism. It's not about uh, even believing in certain doctrines about Jesus. It's like, who are you following? Everybody's following somebody. You're either following yourself more than likely or you're following Jesus, really. Once you have put your trust in him and you are his follower, you're saved, you're safe, you're secure. That salvation word is a good word. All those things come into play. And Abraham is the model of what kind of relationship God always intended us to have. All right. Sometimes you have to leave something, and Abraham had to leave his old life completely behind. How many of you, when you put your faith in Christ, you had to leave some things behind? Can I just see your hands? I gotta tell you, I left my old life behind. And, and, and it's all gonna look different with all of us, but you have to. If I wanna go to Baltimore, I have to leave Frederick. You know, If I wanna go from Baltimore back, I gotta leave, leave Baltimore and come free. When, when you turn to Christ and become his follower, you have to leave, just like Abraham, the old life. So the first question that's important for us to ask is, have we left the old life? And we're, we're gonna specify a little bit better what we mean by the old life. But we need to identify what it is that God wants us to leave. Listen to this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Peter, he's running into age now and the spirit of God's leading him to write some things. He's speaking of Jesus. It says, he himself bore our sins. Jesus was not on that cross for any sin that he did. It was our sins that he was there for. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, meaning the cross. But why? Why, why, did, he, why did he go to the cross for our sins? How come? Why did he do it? What, what does the rest of the verse say? That we may be assured that we are forgiven our sins. Is that what it says? You don't agree with that? Um, he bore our sins in his own body on a tree so that we can be sure we have eternal life. Is that what it says? Okay. Uh, he bore our sins in his own body on a tree that we may do what? You tell me. Three words. Cease from what? Sinning. Do we all know what sin is? Sin is anything that is contrary to the way God designed us to live. Sin is the thing that's destroying this world. Sin is the thing that's brought hurt into all of our lives, either those that have sinned against us or we've, we've sinned against. Sin is sand in the interior machinery. Uh, Rob, Rob and I were talking, it's just like, you know, you put food in your body and your body runs good. That's the way it's designed. You put gasoline in your car because that's the way it's designed. But if you put gasoline in your body, you have damage, right? Doesn't matter if you do it innocently or not. Sin is counter to God's will the way he designed us and it breaks the world and it breaks us and he sacrificed himself to motivate us to inspire us to empower us to stop to cease from sinning but it doesn't stop there not only that and to live for what righteousness I want to do what's right in the sight of God I'm, I'm motivated now I'm empowered and by his wounds we were healed and by the way that has nothing to do with physical healing it's taken from Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 53 it is talking about spiritual 
the spiritual need for healing because we're broken, broken by sin. It goes on to say this, for you were going astray like sheep. Sheep, we've heard that before, but now you have turned back to the shepherd. That's Jesus, the guardian of your souls. Turn back. I've returned to my creator Christ, my shepherd, in trust. And now I follow him fully and I follow him freely and I follow him forever because I trust him. And that's good for my soul. So this is what's involved in this model that Abraham gives us. He left Ur, he left the old life, and God calls us. We have to, we can't hold on to the old life and experience what God wants us to experience. Came across this interesting story about this lady uh, on a tour bus in Iceland. And um, they were going to see these, these uh, non-active volcanoes in Iceland. And so they had a stop, uh, you know, where they could go and go to the bathroom and that sort of thing. And so they looked at the volcanoes and then they came back and they realized, oh, wait a minute, there's a lady missing. And so they, they looked and then they became alarmed and then it became a serious thing. Like they brought the authorities into it. They brought a helicopter out there looking. They had 50 people searching, trying to find this lady. And, and they even had the lady that was missing looking for herself, but they didn't know that. What had happened... Uh, you ladies will understand this, and guys a little bit too. The lady evidently, when she was traveling to the volcanic areas, uh, had her traveling look on. You, you know, let's, let's guess a little, maybe no makeup, maybe a hoodie, maybe her hair pulled back and all like that. But then when she got to the, the uh, restroom there, she put on a change of clothes, probably put a little something, something on her face, and she looked so different with some makeup and some clothes <laughs> that they didn't recognize her. This is a true story. I mean, it was a serious search. It went on for 12 hours, and then the lady finally realized, oh, they're looking for me. <laughs> Remember some of the stuff Jesus said? It's kind of tricky. He says things like, you got to lose yourself to find yourself. you, you got to lose your life to find your life. He says, anybody that loses their life from me and the gospel, the good news about me, they'll find their life. Sometimes we have to leave something to find ourselves. Listen, Abraham became who God always meant him to be, and he did what God always meant him to do. Why? Because he was willing to leave a really, really good life behind. But he trusted God that much. And so, I'm not sure what's happening there, but it really looks exciting. <laughs> I've probably goofed the slide order up again. I've really made them crazy in the first service. Um, so, when God asks us to leave something, it's because he knows it's the only way we can become that person that he's always intended and do those things he's always intended us to do. Listen to one other thing that can hold us back from leaving. In the book of 1 John, John writes these words. He says, don't fall in love with this corrupt world or worship the things it can offer. It's easy. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to say don't fall in love with it if there weren't things that are seductive about it. Ur, I'm sure, was very seductive and compelling for uh, Abraham. Those who love its corrupt ways don't have the Father's love living with them. In other words, John's saying, listen, if you can love life in this world, if you can love this culture globally the way it is, with crime and hatred and prejudice and poverty and disease and death and war, if you can love this world something is wrong you are settling for something far short of what God intends all the things the world can offer to you it does offer some seductive things the allure of pleasure the passion to have things the pompous sense of superiority do not come from the father 
These are the rotten fruits of the world. So we have to be on our guard. We have to be willing, like Abraham, to leave the world. And it's illusory. It, it gets at us from a lot of different angles. It's a cultural uh, value-based type of thing. So identify what it is that God would have me leave. I've got to do it. You've got to do it if I'm ever going to become who God intended and do what he wants. But there's a second step in this. It's actualizing his stuff. We actually have to abandon what it is that he wants us to abandon. What, what will this mean? What will this look like in my life? What will it look like in your life? In Abraham's life, it meant that he literally uprooted, left his very satisfying, comfortable life in Ur and wandered around for the next 100 years of his life in Canaan. He, he never really had the nice setup like he had in Ur ever again. But he was, he was God's model for people right down to this very age. So will we actually do this? Will we actually leave the things that God wants us to leave? That becomes the question. The book of Romans urges us about the world again, this, this, this thing that's all around us. It says, do not allow this world to mold you in its own image. It'll pressure us to conform. Instead, be transformed from the inside out by renewing your mind. You see, the scripture says that when we put our faith in our creator, Christ, again, and we start learning God's ways through his word, we live in light. Now we know the truth about the whole universe, the truth about life. We see things that those that are apart from their creator and apart from his word, they don't see. They walk, the Bible says, in darkness. And so we should be changed from inside as our minds are full of understanding. God gives us his infinite understanding to we finite minds, to our finite minds. And this should allow us the strength to say, no, I'm not going to adapt to the values of this decadent world that's destined for a slide into destruction. I, I'm not going to do it. We have to leave it, so to speak, and yet we're supposed to stay engaged with it for the sake of those that are apart from Christ. Let me try to, um, I, I'll share one more verse with you, and then I want to give you an illustration I hope will help. In 1 Peter 2.11, it says it in a slightly different way. I beg you, says Peter, as those whom I love, live in this world as strangers and temporary residence. You know, we're just passing through. This is not our home. To keep clear of the desires of your lower natures, for they're always at war with your soul. How many of you have experienced your lower nature pulling you away from what would be right in the sight of God? And maybe in the past month, you've had some things fly through your head that you just know this is not God's will for sure. How many of you ever had that happen in the past month even? Yeah, our lower nature. It wars against our soul. It's trying to to keep us from becoming who God wants us to become. So we've got to leave that. We, we've got to uh, understand there's a battle that we have to embrace within ourselves. All right, let me show you a stone. And I know I've forgotten those Hebrew verses, and I may or may not get back to them because I'm burning a lot of time. Um, very beautiful, uh, lustrous, illuminated stone. And let me put you in, a, in an imaginary situation, but one that I hope will help you to see why God wants us to leave some things, and we actually, we actually must leave them if we're to experience what he wants to experience. Imagine that you are a missionary and you've been studying a certain primitive tribe for some decades. And you know some things about this primitive tribe. They are utterly untouched by society, modern society at all. What you also know is that the average uh, lifespan is only 20 to 30 years old. Rarely do any of them make it to 30 years old. You also know that most of them in this particular village um, they, they experience hair loss. They experience a lot of deformities in childbirth. They experience a lot of open sores and wounds. And like I said, they're, they're weakly and they die usually before 30. 
So you've studied this, this village and you're trying to build a bridge with them. And what you see though is these stones, these beautiful stones are all over the village. They, they typically have them as um, ornaments, you know, bracelets, necklaces. They have built idols out of these beautiful stones. And the thing that you notice about these stones is that even at nighttime, they glow just like you just saw. And you find out that what they are worshiping and wearing and what their tribe for many generations has loved and believed in and was proud of and felt so comfortable with was uranium. And so though they sincerely loved it, built their lives around it, it was killing them. And they had no, nothing to compare to. They didn't know that people should live far longer than 20 or 30 years. They didn't know that it was unusual to have so many children born with deformities. They didn't know it was unusual for their hair to be falling out at young ages, men and women. They didn't know that this was radiation disease. They had no way of knowing. So here's your challenge. As a missionary, you've got to somehow build a bridge with them so that they will trust you enough that they will leave behind things that they have considered Blessed, wonderful, beautiful, adorable, enjoyable, everything they've built their life around, everything the generations before them have built their life around, you've got to convince them it's destroying you. It's killing you. And they're going to be thinking, what are you talking about? The majority of our people have always loved these things, done these things. This is God's dilemma. How, how does God convince us we've got to leave behind these things that he calls sin, these things that he says are uh, a contrary cultural focus, worldliness. How, how does he convince us? Well, he tries by letting us experience the bitter pill that some of these things bring to us, but he also then reveals the depth of his love and, and character in Christ, 33 years on this planet, and ultimately a sacrificial death. But that's the challenge. How does he get us, how does he pry our fingers off of things that we think are the spice of life, man, that, that, that are making life worth living? And he knows that they're actually killing us. They're stealing us. They're destroying our soul slowly. That's God's challenge. And so the point I'm trying to make is it's one thing to theoretically say we're going to leave things and abandon things. But if we don't actually abandon them, we're just like those natives that are slowly dying unless they actually leave everything that they thought was good and adorable and desirable. That's our dilemma. Um, I want to show you a couple verses. I'm going to go back to, to the book of Hebrews. If you don't mind, bear with me. Turn to, he, to page 1356 real quick in Hebrews. And I'll read, read about Abraham just a little bit more in verse 8. 1356, Hebrews 11, verse 8. It says, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance. And he went out without understanding where he was going. He didn't even know where he was going. And he trusted God for that. It says in verse 10, he was looking forward to the city with firm foundations whose architect and builder is God. He lived in the best city of his day, but he knew inside, this is not enough. God's got to be able to bring something better than this. It goes on to say this in verse 16. It says, they aspire to a better land, and that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. How many of you have ever read Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in the Bible? You ever read Revelation 21 and 22? If you have, you know God's actually building a city. And the city has real dimensions. It's 1,400 miles square and 1,400 miles high. It's a cube. It's enormous. And it's a city that will be brought down to earth um, toward the end of the age. And there'll be a beautiful new earth, and there'll be this city, the city of God. No more sickness, sorrow, pain, death, 
light all the time, and the light of the city is God himself. There's a yearning, there's an ache in our souls for the city, the city that only God can bring. But you have to be willing, and I have to be willing to leave this seductive city, this seductive world culture that we live in today. And we do this by decisions, making decision values based on Scripture. Let me close, since I've gone long, and I've got to still uh, take us through communion. Let, let me close with a story about a guy. I'm not going to read those other verses. Uh, his name is Terry Lane, and uh, I'll tell you his story. He moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and he was a carpenter, a good, good cabinet maker. And so he started a business. The business started progressing. He started adding more workers, and finally he needed a, a huge warehouse space to house his workers in. He had 40 workers. So he found a good warehouse in Jacksonville, Florida. And so the business was booming like crazy. His cabinets were high quality, 40 people working for him. But in this new warehouse space where they were setting up their factory, all of a sudden they started noticing week after week they were getting calls from the police department, the burglar alarms in their building going off, cars literally that were parked nearby being burnt up, uh, windows broken out, uh, crimes, people being shot right, right by the business. And so finally one of these evenings where he was called out by the police, uh, the policeman says to Terry Lane, he says, what in the world did you ever buy property right by the rock? And Terry Lane said, what do you mean the rock? He says, the rock, the Cleveland Arms Apartments, you're, you're, they're right there. It's the worst cesspool in all of Jacksonville. Jacksonville. It's, it's full of you know, crack dealers and prostitutes and the worst kind of criminals imaginable. imaginable. That's why you have so much trouble here all the time. And so Terry Lane was a Christian, a Christ follower, and he started thinking about this. And so he's thinking about it, and he's praying. He said, one day, he, he's praying, and, and his verse goes through his mind about, you know, your enemies. Remember Jesus said, um, bless those who curse you and do good for those who abuse you and pray for those and all like that, your enemies. And he said, okay, do, do good to those who despitefully use you. So he gets this idea. He buys a bunch of basketballs because he knows kids in this, this terrible development. And he writes something pretty cheesy on them. He just writes on them, God loves you. And so does Mr. Lane. <laughs> and, he, and he throws the basketballs over the fence, you know, and uh, just lets see what, what's going to happen. And, of course, at least he didn't throw them back. So he thought that was good. But nothing really happened. A few days later, it was a Saturday. He was the only one at the, at the warehouse. Everybody else had gone home. And he hears all this noise outside. And under one of the trailers where he keeps a lot of equipment stored, he, he sees these three kids crawling underneath and just having a good old time. And then when they see him, they say, the man, the man. How many of you ever did it when you were a kid? You were doing something you shouldn't. And you say, the man, the man, you run. You run like crazy, man. And so they start to run. He says, no, 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 don't run, don't run. I want to give you something. I'm going to give you. So the kids stop. They come back. He takes them inside his warehouse. He opens his soda machine up, and he gives them all sodas. And, and he doesn't say anything else. That was that. That was Saturday. Monday morning, he hears this ruckus in his warehouse during working hours. He comes out and here's 34 kids. True story, 34 kids. Where's, where's the big man with the beard that gives the sodas away? <laughs> so the workers didn't know what to do. He opens up the machine, he gives them all sodas. And this was the start of a journey. Listen to this. 10 years later, he leaves behind this booming business and he starts a ministry called the Kids Connection Sunday School, Metro Kids Connection Sunday School. And he gives his whole life now devoted to ministering to these kids. That's 10 years after the first event, the Coke Exchange. Five years after starting this ministry, he wasn't a pastor, he, he, just, he just cared. 
Five years after that, he and his wife moved into the Cleveland Arms Apartments, a hellhole full of criminals, prostitutes, and crack dealers. But he was, he was known in that community after 10 years of taking care of their kids. And he moved in. Fast forward, 2018. Here he is today. He's still right there. Right there. He ministers to about 145 kids a week. He hasn't even tried with the parents. They're just too far gone in most cases. But he's bringing kids into the love of Christ because he was willing to leave a very lucrative business that he built himself honestly and take a long journey. And now he's going to spend likely the rest of his life in the Cleveland Arms Apartments. But he's serving God and he's serving kids that will never know the love of Christ in any other way. I'm telling you, man, if that doesn't move you and inspire you, I don't know what will. I bet you there's some of you, there's been times in your life, you, you've had it fly through your head. I bet you, I bet you there's something I could do. And you know what that, you know, it might have been for teenagers. It might have been for people that are suffering from terminal diseases. It might be from people that need academic training to get jobs. I mean, whatever it is, you've had something fly through your mind. I could do this. And then you go on with your busy life because it was going to mean leaving something in order to do that. And yet that thing that you didn't do might be the thing that will help you become who you were always meant to become and do what you were always meant to do. It's worth the risk. It's worth leaving Ur to be a part of the city that God's building. Now, I'm not saying everybody here needs to leave a career. I'm not saying that anybody needs to leave a career. I'm not even saying Terry Lane needed to leave a career. I'm just trying to help you understand that when God sometimes asks us to leave something, it's only because he wants to bless us, make us great, make us a blessing, and do things through us that we never dreamt were possible. So let's ask a simple couple questions. What is it that you know God wants you to leave, but you haven't left it yet? Second, when are you going to do it? What's it going to take? One last question. I said two, we'll go three. Have you reconnected with your creator Christ? Have you made that decision to put your trust in him and follow him for the rest of your life? Because when you do, he looks at you just as if you never sinned. You are credited with a right standing with him. If you've never made that decision, you're probably never going to have a better opportunity than today. So I hope you'll be humble and smart and you'll do what I did at age 23 and become his follower today. Let's pray. We thank you for your word, that you preserved it to us, that you, you started this movement through this man Abraham. And we pray that you'll give real clarity to each of us what we need to leave, that we can find what only you can give and become who you always meant us to be and do what you always meant us to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.